This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 31st of January 2024 at home in Wicklow and it is an episode about connection. I wanted to talk about connection after listening to someone else's podcast and it was a music podcast and I was like, oh, why is this moving me so much? And it was about connection to the artist being discussed. And so I talk about, yeah, my connection to different musical artists and to movies in general. And then speak about a recent movie uh, in some detail at the end of the episode. And yeah, it's just a general exploration of that, like what you connect, what I connect to um, aesthetically, what speaks to me. And then other areas of connection in my life, including women, girls, that kind of thing. Um, and the uh, and the natural world and the body movement. So that's what's coming up. Um, I hope you find it diverting. I'll see you around the corner. Cheers. Change my mind Leaving the dream behind Keep my mojo inside Hi, my name is Dara Clear And you're listening to The Clear Out You're very welcome I'm laughing because there's a chicken <laughs> There's a chicken as there often are here There you go There's a, there's a chicken, one of five, here at Hashtag Blessed this is uh, a young rooster who is making his presence felt. So I'm going to try and be very zen and detach from my emotional response to that interruption. Um, I'm not sure he, th- th- this chicken must be <laughs> must be gathering, congregating just outside the window. There's a window to my right, there's a window behind me, and it's outside that one behind me, hanging out with his, his sisters uh, and perhaps his mother and his his aunt. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what that rooster's name is. Who do we have? Bobo and Charlotte are the, the mothers. There's Bluey, there's Bob Ross, and... Hmm. Gone blank on that guy's name. Anyway, we'll see. I'll I'll, I'll persevere. Um. So, hello. How are you? Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for pressing play and choosing this podcast. When there are so many others you could be listening to, I hope this won't be confined to uh, the wasted time category. So first and foremost, um, I just want to say thank you to some of the people who reached out to me after last week's episode in which I spoke very openly and in quite a lot of detail about um, my lifelong relationship with depression and suicidal ideation. Um, And I spoke about a recent very poor um, 
a recent bout or spell of very poor mental health um, in the middle of January. Um, oh, there he is passing the window. Jesus. Um, and anyway, I had a couple of, yeah, a few, a few people just reach out to me privately um, with words of, um, of what? Of, of recognition, of appreciation, um, uh, words of comfort, words of acknowledgement. And yeah, that was really nice. I mean, that, 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 that wasn't the reason I put that stuff out there, but it's certainly lovely to, to hear people respond. So, um, you know, with such kind of sincerity and, and consideration. And as I said, in some cases with a a certain amount of, of recognition. Um, yeah. So thank you. If you are, if you're one of those people, um, there was something else I wanted to add to that and it, it didn't, it just didn't arise as I was speaking last week. Um, I think, and, and, you know, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to stay on this topic today, really. Um, although I have other related thoughts that I may go into another time. Um, and certainly one of those thoughts is in the area of how we relate to metaphorical sort of light and dark. Um, cause that, that, that was a very powerful sort of metaphor that I found myself dwelling on last week once I'd done the podcast and felt so much better, I just felt like I'd shifted a massive obfuscating obfuscating object that lay between me and and light, like an enormous boulder or dark presence that just was refusing the admission of light. And once I did the podcast last week, I felt that just dissolve or no longer be there um and it just got me kind of thinking yeah like it's a very literal metaphor and for that i apologize and yet it it, you know it kind of works um and i will I'll, i'll i'll share more thoughts on that maybe another time just about what i think is the the dark side of particularly like a lot of um internet culture and curated content culture in the wellness area um there's such a dominant presentation of this is me in the light and i am as i've expressed in other terms before i'm very suspicious of that and i think if 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 you have a if you have the conviction that you can permanently reside in the light you are completely delusional and it's it's unhealthy um it's you know it's it's you know it of course it's analogous to the idea of you can be happy all the time which i've never believed and don't value that as a concept um but if you think you're always going to be bathing in sunlight um it's going to really affect your ability to be comfortable in the dark and me doing a podcast like I did last last week is a reflection of a certain amount of qualified comfort with darkness um, that I have Uh, I just see it as part of the normal human experience although obviously I was 
talking about a very extreme end of that experience for myself. Um, yeah, but in any case, I was going to say just in the in the, in, the, in the specific context of dealing with uh, mental health struggles um, and you know particularly depression, anxiety, etc., and, and related mental health um, um, experiences. I was, it was only afterwards I was thinking to do that on a, on a sober spectrum is a very particular thing. Like that's a very particular um, battle as opposed to doing it within um, the kind of the, the, the comforting influence or the suppressing influences of alcohol or drugs. Um, and that hasn't been my road historically. Uh, it wasn't it hasn't ever really been a feature in my life. Um, I can enjoy a drink or two, and do, but it's never been my my coping mechanism. Um, it's never been what I've sought out as a way of obliterating the 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 darkness or the 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 debilitating thought patterns or the emotional disruption, obliteration, chaos, whatever you want to call it. Um, And I think that's, I I do think that's a very relevant point. And that's not, that that is not to say, I'm not trying to weigh one against the other. I'm not trying to put one up on a a higher position of, of coping or, a harder type of struggle it's just different it's different it's different coping with that stuff you know when you're not um you're not someone who's accustomed to using alcohol to cope or drugs to cope just as it's very different for someone who does use those substances to contemplate coping um with a, a certain level of sobriety so you know that and of course if there's a substance dependency or addiction, of course, that's um, that's really so closely connected to those struggles and trauma and, you know, and everything else. So in any case, that was just something I wanted to add as a sort of um, as a sort of a coda to to last week's episode. But 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 once again, let me just say, you know, some of the responses I had, um, even a word here or there, some you know much more detailed than that um, were very meaningful to me very moving um, and and indicative to me of the value of putting something like that out there into the into the public space um so yeah okay so moving on today um i want to talk about connection It was funny last week I was I was driving up to Dublin early one morning and I was listening to a podcast that I've mentioned here before, uh, 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, uh, presented by, curated by and presented by Rob Harvilla, uh, who I think he's a very funny, self-deprecating Midwestern American who has a very emphatic style of delivery, but often suffused with a very knowing humour. Um, and often, you know, very can be very moving. Um, just some of his observations and the way he lays out his own responses are 
connection to certain songs or musicians. Um, but in any case, a very recent episode, maybe last week's episode, was looking at George Michael's song, his single, Freedom 90. Um, and I was listening to it. I listened to the whole episode and I just found myself, yeah, quite affected by it and really thinking very fondly of, of George Michael and kind of feeling sad about his death. And um, yeah, I was just like, oh, right, OK, so what, what? <laughs> I was kind of just checking myself going like, what's this about? What am I? Why is this speaking to me so much? Because um, it wasn't like I was a, a died in the wool wham fan, um, and then I just was like, "Oh yeah, well you you, <laughs> you can't you can't really control what you connect to or what connects with you. Like either something connects or it doesn't, and." Wham and George Michael, they connected. They connected with me on some level. Um, even though, even even though at the time, even as a kid, I would have been like, "Oh well, Wham! That's you know, that's primarily it's primarily a pop act for girls." And one of my older cousins was a big fan, and that just made sense to me. And then she was a George Michael fan when he commenced his solo career with Faith that album. Um, but by the time I was a little bit older, I was like, yeah, no, no, no problem. I'm, I'm very happy to go out and buy, um, to buy the album that Freedom 90 was on, which was, uh, Listen Without Prejudice, volume one. Um, but yeah, it was, it was funny listening to Rob Harvilla on that podcast, just describing George, the young George Michael and Andrew Ridgely and just describing them as um, you know very good looking lifeguards uh, and I think I, I certainly know that like as, as a young kid as a boy I was interested in male beauty um, and certain figures kind of jumped out at me Elvis would have been one for sure and yeah, George Michael and Andrew Ridgely would have been others, um, and probably George Michael particularly. And I, I don't, yeah, you know, my memory is not one of, um, you know, of any sort of budding or, or latent sexual attraction. Although, I mean, I suppose that could have been in the mix. It's not inconceivable, um, but that wasn't how I was thinking about it. Although as I, as I, as I think it through now, I suppose it's pretty safe to say that I was, you know, I was admiring boys before I was admiring girls in, in that sense of, you know, pinups. Um, and then there was a shift and I was always interested still in kind of cool men or good looking men. I mean, David Bowie would have featured very prominently, um, as a guy, as a as a kid growing up in the the seventies and eighties, and David Bowie's shift into the sort of let's dance era and his kind of eighties sort of 
I don't know, kind of an 80s Bowie chic. Like he was, he was somehow slicker and cooler and leaner and the lines were cleaner than a lot of other 80s style. Um, and, you know, you had that as a sort of a, a reference point. You had Wham's kind of nice boy shininess. Um, uh, maybe Michael Jackson around the Thriller era in his white suit. Uh, I was like, you know, th- these guys are really cool <laughs> and very attractive men. Um, and wouldn't it be nice to be that attractive? <laughs> but um, yeah, so I was I was kind of laughing at myself going, oh, wow, yeah. And like, every little clip that was played of... Wham's back catalogue and George Michael's back catalogue I just found myself going oh yeah (laughs) oh yeah I remember that well and you know of course there's a certain amount of nostalgia there that's in the mix you can't you can't separate from that and it's a it's a trip back to childhood and it's a trip back to more innocent times um and I remember having like friendly debates about George Michael's sexuality with uh, uh, a friend of mine a a, a girl who I used to pal around with and you know she was a little bit older than me and therefore supposedly more sophisticated Um, and she was definitely a girl that I was attracted to (laughs) but I remember us debating George Michael's sexuality and she was just like totally matter of fact well of course he's gay and I was like, no, 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 no. Look at look at the album. Look at the album cover. Look at the artwork. Uh, and I think it must have been Faith that we were looking at. Because I think in that artwork, there's a, you know, there's a woman in some of the, the photographs. I, I'm not sure if I'm misremembering this. But I was like, come on now. Of course he's not gay. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't, um, I wasn't threatened by the possibility that George Michael was gay. Um... I probably quite like the idea of him as being, you know, uh, a healthy, sexualized straight guy and vicariously enjoying the women that he was enjoying as a as a young fan. But um, yeah, of course, my friend was right. And, you know, later as you get older, like that, that whole part of George Michael's story is very poignant. Um, and that, you know, his negotiation of that and, you know, the difficulty of that. Um, but certainly the, 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 the single freedom, um, freedom 90, cause there was a wham song called freedom as well. I loved that single. I loved the George Michael single freedom 90. And I remember being just mesmerized by the, the supermodels who featured in the video and in some of the promotional material for, for that song. Because um, George Michael doesn't feature in the video, he was uh, apparently at the time he was making a position, taking a position that he would no longer appear in his videos, and maybe trying to remove himself from the the lustful gaze of his legions of female fans, and trying to go, no, I need to go inside and remove myself before I come outside. Um, or, you know, and obviously, obviously, I'm, I'm referring to coming out as a, a gay man. Um, which he did do later um, in, a, in a very uh, funny 
uh, you know, funny way, that video he made, let's go outside after he'd been caught um, soliciting uh, sexual services in a toilet in L.A., wasn't it? Um, And he did a video of let's go outside and he dressed up as a sort of a a YMCA style cop um, and very knowing and tongue in cheek. But you kind of go, yeah, good on you, uh, George Michael. (laughs) But the, yeah, the Freedom 90 video featured just this extraordinary uh, lineup of the top supermodels of the of the moment, just Naomi Campbell and Christy Turlington and Cindy Crawford and Linda Evangelista and Tatiana Patitz. And my goodness, my goodness, you're just going, this is a whole other level of human excellence <laughs> in physical form. Just stunningly good looking women. Um, and again, connect. <laughs> did that connect? Yes, it did. Of course it did. Um, and it, it fueled, it, it probably fueled this, you know, a relationship I had with just, if not the female form, the female face and female facial beauty um and that was that definitely informed how how i was attracted to women um it was for me it was never it it was never like check out that body it was always like look at that face um and that kind of continues to be the case really I suppose uh, at, at this stage of my life but I said su- yeah what I, what I kind of came away with what I what I came away with from listening to the podcast was oh yeah the connection the sense of connection to George Michael and it just made me reflect on you know why why some people or some things connect with us rather than others. Um, Like I never connected with the more indie side of things. I connected with pop. I connected with soul in terms of music. Um, I connected with, uh, you know, attractive aesthetics. Well, what I considered attractive and probably pretty conventional. I connected with voices. Um, I connected with someone like Alison Moye. I connected massively with Prince um, and in my teens when I started to investigate Prince's back catalogue some of those earlier albums which um, in you know in and I'm talking pre pre Purple Rain um, you know some of those very early albums when he was kind of first making a name for himself and how overtly sexual his songs were and how uniquely princey they were and i was like whoa and you know they felt they felt sort of illicit um yeah and not that i was growing up in a in, in a household that was particularly censorious or sexually uptight or anything like that but you know my parents weren't listening to prince my older brother had kind of bailed at that stage um although it was was him who brought uh 
you know purple rain the album into our house and that was my my first exposure to prince and i was like yeah this guy he is the man um and i think you know prince of of all the music i listened to growing up like prince prince's music and his as i say his back catalog at that time in the mid 80s to kind of mid to late 80s like there was nothing more sexual i'd been exposed to um i'd have to go back to even younger and finding hidden copies of playboy that my my, my father had in the house um and you know not even not even movies had connected sexually at that time but prince and his absolute immersion in male desire lust obsession objectification of the object of desire and the songs he wrote and the words he sang and the the vibes he brought <laughs> i was just like holy shit <laughs> who is this guy now i never felt i never felt you know i never felt any sort of um you know brotherhood or connection to prince the man he was just too out there but i found him fascinating and i loved his music um because he was just too you know some people cannot be reached you know you i, I couldn't imagine yeah, I couldn't imagine sidling up to Prince and go, yo, hey, I get it. I know what you mean. <laughs> he was just, oh my goodness. He was just so out there. And then, you know, just so cool and so many great hits. And that, and Sign of the Times, when that album came out. Now that, that album and that song just... I don't know if if that was if that was the peak if that was the apex if that was peak prince oh man i was so on board i just thought this is it this is the stuff this is the shit um there is nothing cooler on planet earth than this song right now this man what he's playing the sounds he's making uh and there was just such banging songs that came off that album um which and you know and this was relevant in oh in the in the the george michael podcast last week the sort of the mtv-ness of certain artists at certain moments in you know in 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 that first whatever 10 15 years of mtv before complete you know almost seemed to stop playing music altogether but if you were watching mtv in the 80s and watching you know prince songs and watching madonna i think as well i think i was a real mtv artist michael jackson um and your whatever age anything from you know eight to to 15 those videos those songs they are going to hit and they did um but yeah, Prince, ah, oh, unbelievable stuff. Like a, a, an education, I think. <laughs> um, and then, I don't know. I, I mean, look, I, I didn't sit down here today to start trying to, to go through 
the artists that I've loved. Um, I mean, later on, um, I got into the, you know, English female hip hop artist, Nena Cherry. Um, yeah, I was into her a lot. But then I was also into an Irish folk band like Clannad. Um, I was also into ZZ Top based on their three or four massive MTV generation hits. And I went back and found an early ZZ Top album. It was really bluesy and loved that. I loved Paul Young and his blue-eyed soul. Um, and then later kind of came to kind of came to Dylan and came to Van Morrison um, and that stuff really spoke to me as well um, so so what connection I mean it's it, this is the stuff of relationships isn't it what we connect to what we respond to and it's our relationship with ourself it's what we're it's what we're looking for whether we know it or not it's what we're open to it's what speaks to us um and i think if i think just off the top of my head sitting here and i'm thinking prince bob dylan george michael now they're pretty distinctive um musical entities and I think they all spoke to me in different ways. The the sort of the shiny popness of George Michael that was masking something sort of melancholy or something sadder behind the mask. I I think I tapped into that. I would I don't think I would I wouldn't have been able to articulate that as a kid. Um, but there was a sort of a, a softness and a vulnerability in George Michael that I think was part of his appeal, even though he's just this kind of beautiful boy with a beautiful voice. I mean, the voice, holy hell. What a great, great singer. What a beautiful instrument he had. Um, and so, I, I mean, I tapped into that, something about the the vulnerable sexuality of of a boy, of a young man, um, and that spoke to me on some level. That wasn't about me being attracted to him. Um, and Prince spoke to, yeah, just Prince just spoke to the kind of, you know, to, to sex and sexual desire. And <laughs> wanting to consume women and consume female sexuality. And he was just so outrageous and blatant and he almost the way Prince would feminize himself to get close to women and get close to female sexuality I found that fascinating and it spoke to me and it just seemed to me to, you know to me instinctively it felt like oh yeah that's and not as a strategy you know, and this isn't this wasn't this wasn't a planned strategy, but it felt like, yeah, I, I feel I feel comfortable with that as an idea, you know, to 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 not to present ultra masculinity, but to be soft 
approachable, fluid, gentle, um, unthreatening. Um, that just seemed to make sense to me. It spoke to me and my makeup. Um, and it just seemed like, yeah. You know, you know, it gets you. Know, I saw it, but I, I, I felt this is you know that would be a natural way to be close to, to women, and then, sure, like if 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 something sexual was a byproduct of that, fantastic. Um, but I mean, often that just led to you know friendships or a good connection or or fun or laughter or, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Prince was giving me the template, and I think that's also you know it spoke to me because I never thought, oh yeah, I'm going to be the alpha, I'm going to be the guy who is the object of female desire. I'm going to be, I'm, I'm the guy who's going to turn heads at the disco, <laughs> maybe for the wrong reasons. I never felt I was that guy. I never felt I was, could be a player or a ladies' man. And I, that 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 just seemed ludicrous. Um, but I felt like I don't know. I felt like I saw women. I saw girls, and that's a strong flavor. That's a strong flavor when you're a kid, when you're a teenager. Girls are like, get the hell away from me, Mister Mister Sincere, Mister Earnest, <laughs> Mister Soft and Mushy. No, no thanks. They want they want the cool they want the cool boys at that stage, um, and then Dylan, I mean Dylan Jesus, where do you begin? There was something in Dylan, the the clarity of his storytelling, the clarity of his lyrics, the clarity of the sentiment coming out of this voice, which is frankly not a not a lovely voice um but when you hear um blowing in the wind for the first time or when you hear a hard rain's going to fall for the first time that th- there's something about the, the 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 purity of of the message and in the folk medium and the kind of judicious nature of Bob Dylan's lyrics that if you're if you're if you're on that frequency if you're opening open to receiving that it's it goes straight to the heart it goes straight to the vein of of the human experience of fellow feeling of something intimate and universal and the the sort of deceptive sophistication of Dylan lyrics, which of course changed over time and got more obviously sophisticated and poetic and and layered uh, and more brilliant. But my entry point was Bob Dylan's More Greatest Hits. I'm sure I mentioned this before at some point. was the More Greatest Hits double vinyl album. And there were just so many great songs on that. And one of my favourites... and there were so many on that album. I remember loving Positively 4th Street. But ultimately, one of my all-time favourite Dylan songs is Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. And what he tapped into for me in that is 
a sort of male heartbreak slash stoicism slash self-pity um and i was like oh yeah (laughs) yeah that's that's my wheelhouse um there's a real bitterness and sadness and hurt in that song that i absolutely love um yeah and yeah yeah so that like dylan the way he spoke to that part of my evolving brain or evolving sense of self um yeah i don't know so i don't know if that covers all the bases because like dylan had the kind of the political the social the personal um the the you know the there's such there's such richness to be mined in Dylan's songs, and I'm not a completist, and I don't consider myself a Dylan head. Um, it's just not how I roll. Uh, with how I think of, I've never been that kind of music consumer, that type of music listener or fan. But certain artists at certain times took hold. Um, and I mean, like Michael Jackson was definitely another one. And I know Michael Jackson and his own personal legacy and the the abuse allegations and stories um, complicate how we think of him. But, you know, I'll never not be a fan. I'll never not be a fan, particularly of Off the Wall and Thriller um, and Bad. I mean, those three albums in particular... I mean, I stopped listening after that, even though I was aware of, you know, certain hits and whatnot, but I'd moved on. I kind of moved from, you know, Michael Jackson to Prince. That to me was the evolution um, or the revolution, if you're talking about Prince. But Michael Jackson was there, definitely. Um, And I wonder if there was an album I listened to more than Thriller as a kid. You know, it had the lyrics um, with the the you know with the in sleeve, and again and again and again and again that album would be played. Um, yeah, incredible stuff. Um, and just to just to kind of put a quick cap on this because I want to go somewhere else. You know, the Beatles and the Stones were in there. And have been in there and are always there on one level or another and they're different you know the kind of the two-headed beast of the beatles and the stones and their different sensibilities and what they wore on their sleeves um and the the sort of danger of the stones and the sweetness of the beatles it doesn't detract from the brilliance of either um just yeah just extraordinary bands extraordinary songwriters um that evoke very different feelings and i think if the beatles appeal to the the heart and the head um the stones to me were always a below the belt band um and you know with some you know with certain tracks you know moving to different parts of the body but 
and and that's a you know that's a very crude reduction um yeah but but great great stuff altogether um anyway the other thing that i've connected with obviously is 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 movies um and i think that's just the the way the way film can infiltrate the senses and get inside you through you know just through sound and motion and image um it's as simple as that and the filmic nature of how we receive the world through our eyes and how a film can capture that and just put these bewitching images in front of us. I was, I sat and watched half of Blade Runner last night. Um, I was just too tired to watch all of it. But just that, one of those opening moments of the eyeball a human eye a close-up of a human eye um seeing an eruption of explosive flame and it fills one side of the iris of this eye it's just an extraordinarily brilliant image um and it, it's kind of impossible to watch a ridley scott movie and not think of his background in commercials tv sorry not think of his background in tv commercials and his ability to capture images um and there's another sequence in um blade runner where harrison ford's character is dreaming of a unicorn moving through a woods during a sort of a a misty day and that just feels like straight out of a tv commercial for shampoo or, or chocolate or, or unicorns <laughs> but just oh such visual flair and the world that is created in Blade Runner and the music the Vangelis soundtrack um, and the characters and when to put the camera in close and when to pull it away and such vivid characters from M. Emmett Walsh's sleazy police chief um, to Edward Olmos as the very peculiar detective who seems to be always over Harrison Ford's shoulder, watching him, slightly mocking, patronising him. Um, you know, Harrison Ford in his young prime, um, he must have been around 40 at that stage, I think. Sean Young, an actress I've never particularly warmed to, but very good as well. William Sanderson, Daryl Hannah, Brian James, um, and of course Rutger Hauer as as Batty, as Roy, the kind of alpha of these these um, cyborg creations who uh, Harrison Ford's character Deckard has to eliminate or retire is the phrase they they like in the in the vernacular of the movie um brilliant i was too young as a kid to really appreciate the the sophistication of 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 blade runner 
I think it came into our house as a video at some point. Um, I just remember one of those end sequences where Deckard is pursuing um, Roy and he his hand goes through the wall and his fingers get broken. But I remember watching it as a kid going, why isn't this more like Star Wars? But now it would be it would be one of my my favourite movies. Um and again Harrison Ford has this kind of, you know, bruised noirish detective. Um I think one of Harrison Ford's great assets as a as an actor, the way he can wear male vulnerability in this otherwise sort of alpha persona. Um, he just walks that line in almost all of his movies very effectively and very endearingly. I think it always draws you in um, because he's far from he's far from all dominant. And that spoke to me as well. Uh, but yeah, I think um, I was going to just talk quickly about. I don't know. The, I don't know what the conclusion is to this. There's another movie I'm going to talk about now in a second. But like, I mean, still staying in this area of 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 connection. And I've spoken a bit about music, and I spoke just there briefly about um, movies and you know there's definitely a through line the aesthetic is in the mix the the artistic beauty of of actors of images of performers of 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 their fashion their look their vibe that's always been in there for me that's always been something I've responded to and still do um, and I think for someone who sits at this mic once a week and just talks and talks and talks and it's words and it's language and it's verbal and it's often very cerebral I suppose I'm not, I'm not using that as a self-aggrandizing term but in fact I'm a, I think of myself as a very visual person and that's how I consume the world. I consume the world visually, and I respond to. I respond to what I see, and I respond to how things move, and that's that's usually my entry point. Um, and so I like to use my body, and I like to take things in when I'm using my body whether that's walking up in the hills, which I've been doing quite a bit of lately with uh, Pepper the dog. Um, and karate is a great, a great meeting point of, of, of vision and movement. Like the physical, the physical coordination and the satisfaction of moving well um, and understanding the movement of others, which, you know, and it comes into other exercise and sporting activities that I do um, but it's it's a huge part of how I interact and engage with people and and take in the world around me so I will connect to people that way I will connect like internally as I'm taking them in I'm 
looking at the physical and assessing and feeling the physical, the energy, sensing the movement, sensing strength, sensing weakness, sensing emotion, um, because it's visual and physical and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's sensible, it can be sensed. Um, and that's what I connect with. And I connect with, I can connect with a glass of wine, I can connect with, you know, a plate of food. Um, I can connect with obviously the people I love and care about. Like I was just watching my daughter sitting on the couch the other day with her headphones on looking at episodes of Bluey, the, the Australian cartoon, and just watching the smiles and the laughter play on her face uh, from the other side of the room. Um, and it's just, that's its own kind of magic. Um, or seeing my wife laugh at something as well. I respond to laughter. <laughs> Smiles and laughter. Um, you know, you know that's, that's definitely the sunny side of things. But I respond to tears. I respond to, you know, the other, the other emotions as well. <laughs> I respond to anger. <laughs> I respond to sadness. Anyway, listen. Um... This is an incomplete thesis today. Um, I just knew that that was my starting point. And certainly I recognise that last week's episode was a moment of connection. It was me connecting with my own understanding that, that that was something I needed to do. And what I did then did connect with some other people, which is lovely. Um, and I know some people connect to my voice. I know in some of the teaching that I do. There's a way I have of, you know, my kind of teaching approach is always the, 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 the desire is to break things down and make them simple and make them understandable and help people access the, the you know, the, the, the objective as quickly and as easily as possible uh, so that they feel empowered by it. Um, so, yeah that's that's connective territory as well and yeah connecting is of course it's it's the joining of things it's the joining dots making connections and that's that's one of the stated raison d'etre of this podcast uh one of the stated missions of this podcast is to connect understanding making sense of things all of that is in in the mix um, but in any case, one thing that did connect with me recently was the, and it, it was uh, Alexander Payne's The Holdovers. Have you seen that yet? I'm not sure there's a better director um, around who, who is, is fun, he's, who is fundamentally like a cinema laureate of male defeat and male pain. And it's, Typically, Alexander Payne's protagonists are men from a certain sector of life, sort of anonymously middle class, um, anonymously respectable and, and, and credible. But if you think of his, his leading men from Matthew Broderick's frustrated and infuriated teacher, high school teacher in election, to to Jack Nicholson's widower husband in 
about Schmidt to Miles, uh, Paul Giamatti's character in Sideways, to George Clooney's character in The Descendants, to Bruce Dern's character in Nebraska. Um, and slightly less obviously maybe Matt Damon's character in <laughs> I'm just going blank on the name of that movie I want to call it it's not called Shrinking <laughs> what's it called it's very funny actually that movie and quite successful but just in a slightly different key to his other movies oh my goodness do you know the movie I'm talking about it's the one in which there's a process by which you can be reduced to a fraction of your size like microscopically small and move into this community and it's a way of um taking up less space and what the hell is the name of that movie kirsten wig is in it as well and is it hong chow it's a good movie i've just gone blank on the name of it um i'll look it up while i'm here rambling but in any case the you know what these characters what these male characters all have in common is um what they all have in common is defeat they're all at this moment in their lives where things haven't worked out and when they're coming face to face with their own shortcomings and they're sort of flailing now i spoke last year i know there was an episode last year and i spoke about um i spoke about the descendants um and the george clooney character in that and coming to terms with a wife who's in a coma who was having an affair on him and just the unraveling of what he understood to be his world um and alexander payne he just he, he just depicts these characters in these stories with such honesty and such kindness he's so kind to these characters he's not patronizing them he's not ridiculing them he just seems to have an innate sympathy for male collapse um, and you know men thwarted in their ambition or understanding of themselves and they've all they've all worked for me that 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 the the, the movie with tiny matt damon is called downsizing from um God, i was going to say six years ago but it's seven years ago now 2017 and it's you know i suppose from a storytelling point of view it's the more most adventurous or offbeat of the movies they're, they're all sort of you know dramedies comic dramas dramatic comedies um but but there's such palpable humanity in his stories and in his characters and his most recent film the holdovers i just think is wonderful i think it's absolutely brilliant and it has at its center uh, a fantastic performance from paul giamatti as as an angry and sort of an angry and crushed classics teacher in uh, a boarding school in america in the at the start of the 70s and he finds himself sort of tricked into being the stay on the grounds teacher over the christmas holidays to look after students who couldn't get away and the film ultimately revolves around his relationship with um uh, a student played by 
an actor called Dominic Sessa. I think one of his first movie roles, and he's brilliant. Who's um, an unhappy young man with a lot of stuff going on in his life, but he's very bright, but he's very sort of wounded, um, and he's sarcastic. Uh, and the third character in this kind of, uh, you know, who, who holds the kind of the narrative together, is the sort of the the head cook at the school, um, a woman who's just lost her son um, to the the Viet- Vietnam War. Um, you know, she she's black, and her her son had been in the school himself, and again, um, you know, very sort of lightly dealt with. Um, and sorry, I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think any of that is a spoiler. I think you'd get all that from the the trailer. And I'm not really going to go into spoilers here because that movie is still out there. You can see it. I think it's on Amazon Prime. Um, but it is so worth checking out and the again the the aesthetics of the movie the sound the cadence of the voices the 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 language that's used the the color palette the soundtrack the you know the musical numbers that play at different times the camera stock like the opening sequence of the film I just I just fell in love with it instantly. Um, it's it's winter. Everything's covered in snow, and it's funny. The movie it made me think of before I'd heard a word of dialogue was um, was is it? Oh, I'm going to get this back to front. Um, the Warren Beatty Julie Christie western from the seventies. Is it McCabe and Mrs. Miller? I think that's what it is. Um, Robert Altman's, uh, you know, movie sort of, you know, New Hollywood anti-Western, and there's some great snow cinematography in that film, and that's what this movie put me in mind of, just because he Payne was so successful in capturing the era and the vibe, um, it really is excellent, and. Just a reminder that so few of these movies seem to be made uh, anymore. Just very unambiguous human dramas that sit in in a place that's just not too extreme and it's not wearing it on its sleeve too obviously and it's not about issues. Um, It's just people. It's just people trying to get by, trying to cope, trying to survive. Um... And maybe trying to do a little bit better. Uh, I find that really admirable. <laughs> and very moving. And really lovely. And there's a lot of humour in the movie. And there's a lot of very judiciously handled personal tragedy in the movie as well. But it's so I, I just found it so successful. Um, and just well worth, well worth checking out. And yeah... I connected to it massively. Um, And one last thing, just one last thing before I wrap up. If you're interested, and because we're talking about movies, you could do a lot worse than check out the latest episode of The Big Picture, a film podcast I've mentioned more than once. Uh, The latest episode deals with the, the, the career of Philip Seymour Hoffman, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, an actor I was enormously fond of, someone I really, really loved, a true original, a true great. 
um, and someone I always held up as, you know, a performer, an actor, an American Holly, you know, American film actor who wasn't afraid to be unattractive, who wasn't afraid to be ugly, who brought such humanity and uh, ugliness to so many of his characters. Um, absolutely brilliant. What a loss. Like how much more great work would he have done had he stayed alive? Um, so it's a great episode and it opens with a very lovely um, audio essay by the the, the presenter, Sean Fennessy. Um, and he just kind of sums... He sums up Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, greatness and his gift really eloquently. So even if you just listen to the audio essay at the start before they go over his filmography and he and Amanda Dobbins uh, wrestle over which are the the best 10 movies of his career. But that's a a really nice episode to get into. And that was an actor I I connected with massively um, and, and miss and miss seeing his work. But thank god we can always go back and watch those movies again and so many of them are worth worth visiting um i particularly loved his his nurse in magnolia um just a such a beautiful heartbreaking character that was all empathy and care and sadness and vulnerability and he he didn't often play characters that were just that they were Often, you know, most of his characters had elements of darkness. Um, but I particularly like that character in Magnolia who tends the, the dying Jason Robards. Okay, that's it. That's all I've got on the, the idea of connection. And this was primarily, yeah, connecting to music and movies and maybe nature and, and women, I guess. <laughs> okay, so I hope um, th- this episode sort of comes as an antidote to last week's um very serious topic but uh, i hope you got something out of it anyway thank you so much for listening you can of course throw me love on throw me love the new album from damien starlight my alter ego throw me love now you can throw me love on social media you'll find me there uh, in all the usual places uh facebook blech. facebook instagram mm. and youtube clear out podcast you can if you're so moved get behind this independent podcast financially with a tiny monthly contribution or a very large one if you prefer using the patreon link patreon.com forward slash the clear out and if you want to email me your thoughts or suggestions for stuff you'd like me to talk about you can do so using the clear out live at gmail.com okay that's it thank you so much for listening Go over there to your record collection and see what you connect with. Or take a video off the shelf. (laughs) Stick it in the old VCR and see what you connect with. Or just have a sit and think, what do you connect with? What connects with you? What speaks to you? Because, you know, if we can just pursue those things, that clarifies a lot of our choices. That helps us stay in a harmonious relationship with the things that make us feel good. Um, and that's good that's a good thing just get out of your own way and follow the connective tissue okay I'll talk to you next week thanks again for listening mind yourselves all the best bye